To divide and conquer means to gain and maintain power by breaking existing power structures into groups smaller than the one implementing the strategy so that one implementing the strategy can dominate or defeat the smaller groups one at a time. That's a lot to say, isn't it? This is a thought and a strategy that's used politically by causing strife between smaller groups so they will weaken one another and become easier to defeat. It's something we see through history, but it's a strategy that's old as humanity itself. You see, Satan used that same strategy in the garden to bring about separation between God and Adam and Eve, and he succeeded. He brought dissension between man and the woman, and what's more, in all of Satan successfully employing this strategy, he did so to become ruler of this world. And it's been an effective tactic for the devil. We know that one day he ultimately he will be cast out. But until that time, he is and will continue to exploit his ability. Just as he attempted to do during the time of Nehemiah. Last week, we talked about the external threat. Now Nehemiah faces an internal threat of dissension, division, and exploitation within his own ranks. And it's a threat that could bring the work on the wall to a screeching halt. We start off in Nehemiah chapter 5 with a great cry. In the midst of a great work for a great God in a great city, there was a great cry heard among the Jews. They're not crying against the Samaritans or the Ammonites or the Arabs, but against their own people. Jew was exploiting Jew, and the economic situation becomes so desperate that even the wives, who usually keep silent in Scripture, are joining in the protest. Now, as we read the first part of chapter 5, there are four groups involved in this crisis. First, there are the people who owned land but needed food. We see that in verse 2. The population was increasing, and there's a famine, and the people are hungry. The people couldn't help themselves, so they cry out to Nehemiah. The second group is composed of landowners who have mortgaged their property in order to buy food. With inflation on the rise, the prices are higher, and the combination of debt and inflation is enough to wipe out a person's equity very quickly. The third group that complains are those whose taxes are too high, and they're so high they had to borrow money to pay them. But in order to borrow the money, they had to have to put up a security, which meant eventually losing their property. You see, the Persian kings received a fortune in annual tribute, but very little benefited the local providences. Today, we pay taxes to support our local services. In Nehemiah's time, the taxes were paid for the king. The fourth group we see that's crying out to Nehemiah are the wealthy Jews who are exploiting their own brothers and sisters by loaning them money and taking their lands and their children as collateral. Boys and girls are having to choose between starvation and servitude. Now, it's not unlawful to loan money to one another, according to Jewish customs, but they weren't act to act like moneylenders and charge interest. They were to treat one another with love in matters of taking security and making a brother a servant. But both the people in the land belong to God, and he would not have anyone using either for personal gain. You see, the wealthy businessmen were exploiting selfishly the poor in order to make themselves rich. And they were using their assembly and their power to rob some and put others in bondage. And the greed is one of the sins the prophets denounced before Babylonian came and captured the Jewish uh, people. And it's a reminder that God has a special concern for the poor and will not hold those guiltless who take advantage of them. But we go from this great cry from the people to a great assembly. You see, it's one thing to confront a foreign enemy, but it's a totally different situation when dealing with one's own people who are fighting with each other 
And the situation here that we read in Nehemiah 5, 6 through 13, Nehemiah shows true leadership in his response to the problem. And it starts with a righteous anger. Now, we're not, uh, it's not an anger that's flaring up because of a sinful temper, but it's an actual expression of righteousness in the way that the people are oppressing their brothers and sisters. It's a holy anger against sin. And Nehemiah knows he has the law of God behind him. It's the same anger that Moses expressed when he came down from the mountain and broke the stone tablets of the law. It's the same anger that Jesus saw in the hardening of the Pharisees' hearts. Now, there may be some who are asking the question, hey, why didn't Nehemiah know about the scandalous issues with the economy any sooner? Well, it's probably because he is so immersed in the one thing he came to do, rebuild the walls. He really didn't have time to get involved in the internal affairs of the community. Remember, he'd been commissioned as the governor to repair the walls and restore the gates, not to reform the community. Also, we remember that Nehemiah hasn't been in the city long enough to know what's going on. And it's interesting to note here that the building of the wall did not create these problems, but it revealed them. A lot of times when churches enter a building project, all sorts of problems start to surface and the people don't even know they're there. A building program can be a demanding thing to test our faith, our patience, and our priorities. And it brings out the best in some people, and it can bring out the worst in the others. But we go from a righteous anger to careful contemplation. Nehemiah says he sat for a moment and thought about the situation. It reminds me of what Proverbs 13, 16 says. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. And then a little bit later in Proverbs 17, 27, we read, He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. This could have been a potentially explosive situation, yet Nehemiah exercises wisdom by giving himself time to literally cool off and think about what needs to be done. The stakes are too high for him to react rashly. If he had said or did the wrong thing, it would have been jeopardizing to the entire project and even would have brought a greater reproach on the people and himself. Commentary writer Raymond Brown says it this way, Anger isn't appropriate, but not a sufficient response. Emotional distress was followed by intellectual reflection, which in turn led to practical action. Nehemiah got, a control, got control rather of his feelings and his thoughts so that he could give constructive leadership to the people. Nehemiah, Nehemiah decides to call this great assembly and publicly confront the people whose selfishness has created this difficult and painful situation. Theirs is a grievous and public sin involving the whole nation, and it demanded what comes next. And what came next in chapter uh, 5, verses six through, uh, 7 through 11, rather, is a public rebuke. Nehemiah rebukes, his rebuke, rather, consisted of six different appeals. He at first appeals to their love by reminding them that they're robbing their own fellow Jews, not the Gentiles. It's interesting to note that in this passage of Scripture, the word brother or brethren is used four times in these verses. It's a reminder of Genesis 13, 8, where Abraham says, Let us not have quarreling between you and me, Abraham, said the Lot, for we are brothers. The next appeal that Nehemiah makes is on the word of God for the law of Moses forbade Jews to extract interest from one another. When the Jewish nation went to Babylon and in captivity, they were an agricultural people. But some of them came out economic people, having learned how to use money to make money. 
And isn't it interesting to note the Bible has so much to say about the right and wrong uses of money? It's also remarkable to how many professional believers ignore these truths and use their resources without consulting the Lord. They think that because they tithe or give an offering to the Lord, they can do whatever they please with the rest of their income. But they forget that we are all stewards of all that God has given us. And God has given us so much. And what he's given us, we are accountable to as good stewards. In this rebuke, the third appeal we see is to God's redemptive purpose for Israel. In the past, we've already seen God redeem Israel from Egypt. And even more recently, he's redeemed them from captivity in Babylon. But this verse, verse 8, informs us that Nehemiah and the others of the leading Jews were putting people into bondage just to make money. And these selfish moneylenders were tearing down everything God and Nehemiah were trying to build up. The question is, what is freedom? It's a life governed by truth and motivated by love. But the Jewish people, these financial people, are motivated by greed and ignoring the truth of God's word. And their selfishness put both themselves and their creditors into bondage. The fourth appeal we see was to Israel's witness to their Gentile neighbors. God had called Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. But their conduct was certainly anything but a witness to their pagan neighbors. How could some of the Jewish citizens build the walls in one hand and enslave their neighbors in the other? If you and I are truly going to fear the Lord, then we will want to honor him before those who don't believe in him. In verse 9, the fear of our God is not something we cringe like a slave towards a master, but it's a loving respect of a child towards a parent. To fear the Lord is to seek to glorify God in everything we do. It means listening to his word. It means honoring it. It means obeying it. Oswald Chambers says this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Because Nehemiah's life was motivated by the fear of the Lord, he did not fear what the enemy might do. It was the fear of the Lord that moved Nehemiah to be, to be a faithful servant of God. It was a fear that caused him to walk in the fear of God, meaning to walk by faith, trusting God to deal with the enemy in one day and balance the accounts. It, for you and for me as a child of God and a believer, it means we claim Matthew 6, 20, 6.33, rather, where it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. It's about having the right priorities in life. But it's also interesting to note in this passage of scripture in Nehemiah 5 verses 10 through 11 that Nehemiah appealed to his own personal practice. He's lending money to the needy and he's not charging interest and he's not robbing them of security. Unlike some leaders, Nehemiah is not saying, do what I say, not what I do. He's not a hypocrite. He practices what he preached. And at the end of this chapter, chapter 5 of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah remind the people that it was God who had enabled him to help his people. For you and for me, Nehemiah is a good example of a believer and a leader. In this passage of scripture, if you go to read verse 11, there's a word that mentioned the hundredth. It's the interest charged for the money. It's probably applied monthly and it was maybe about 12% interest a year. This practice had been going on long before Nehemiah showed up. And now the people were in despair as they tried to balance their family budgets. Nehemiah tells the brokers to restore both their interest and the security they had taken from their fellow Jews, as well as the property they had claimed in foreclosure. 
Now, this is a drastic step of faith and love that would not immediately solve all the economic problems of the people, but it would at least keep the problems from getting worse. But it would also give the suffering people an opportunity to make a fresh start. The sixth appeal that Nehemiah makes is to remind them of the judgment of the Lord in verses 12 through 13. You see, the brokers, the moneylenders, promised to obey God. So Nehemiah had to take an oath in the presence of the priests and other officers of the city. This meant that their promise was not only between them and the city, but also between them and God. And it's a serious thing. This great assembly concludes with three actions that emphasize the seriousness of this occasion. Nehemiah, we're told, he takes his robe and he shook it. This is symbolic of what God would do with the moneylenders if they didn't fulfill their vow. The shaking of the road or the dusting off of the feet was typically a Jewish act of condemnation. But it's interesting to note that the congregation responds with a collective amen, which was much more than a Jewish ritual. This is a solemn assent of what had been said and done in the assembly. Their amen really means so be it. In other words, may the Lord do all that you said. It's an act of worship that made the entire assembly a part of the decision that were that was made then the whole congregation together scripture says praise the lord why because god had enabled nehemiah to help them begin to solve their problems and he had directed the money lenders to acknowledge their sin and make restitution this great assembly that we read about in nehemiah chapter 5 is not an economic summit it is a worship service where nehemiah had lifted a financial problem to the highest possible level and god's people needed to follow his example and deal with every problem in light of the will of God as declared in the word of God. For you and for me, Nehemiah 5 closes with the great example. The evangelist D.L. Moody one time said, a holy life will produce the deepest impressions. A lighthouse blows no horns, only shines. In our day of public scandal, in our day when area area life is under scrutiny, even politically, how refreshing is it to meet a man like Nehemiah who puts serving the people ahead of getting a gain for himself? Nehemiah is a man who practiced what he said. During the first term of his 12 years as governor, and then during the second term of in office, rather, he used his privileges to help the people. He did not use the people to build a kingdom for himself. In that day, most officials exercised their authority in order to promote themselves and protect their own personal interests. And they had very little concern for the people. As children of God, our example is Jesus Christ, not the leaders of the world. Nehemiah and his assistants are an example for us in the face that they did not use their office and their official expense accounts for their own need, nor did they tax the people. Scripture tells us they paid for things out of their own pocket, and they didn't ask to be reimbursed. The Apostle Paul followed a similar policy with the Church of Corinth. He could have accepted support from them, as he did from the other churches, but he chose to work with his own hands and preach the gospel to them without cost. Paul did not say every Christian worker should do this, for we're told in the Bible that the laborer is worth his hire. But every Christian should follow Paul's example of having a balanced spiritual attitude towards wealth and ministry. We must be willing to sacrifice personal gain for the spiritual good of others. It has been said that leaders are people who accept more of the blame and less of the credit. 
but they are also people who quietly sacrifice so that others might have more. Nehemiah and associates not only pay their own bills, but they don't exploit the people. The previous governors had done that, but not Nehemiah. But also we see that Nehemiah is not sitting on the sidelines. He participates in the rebuilding of the wall. He's not an advisor. He's not a foreman. He's actually there doing the work. And it's a reminder of what Jesus says in Luke 22, 27. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? It is not, is it, is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am coming to you as one who serves. And Nehemiah and his aides had that same attitude. The last example we see in this chapter is Nehemiah not only paid for the food, but he paid for the food and he shared it with others. He regularly fed 150 guests, both residents and visitors, and he gave them a lavish meal. We see that in scripture. But it's estimated that the amount of food that Nehemiah gave and shared on a daily basis would have easily fed 500 people. So Nehemiah might have kept an open house. Or maybe he shared what was left over with the people who were working on the wall. We don't know which, which way it is or which, which it was, rather. But we know that Nehemiah was generous to others and asked for no reward. But Nehemiah 5.19 tells us the greatest thing about Nehemiah's service. He did what he did only to praise the Lord. Verse 19 of chapter 5 of Nehemiah is the fourth prayer. And it's a wonderful expression from Nehemiah of worship and humility. He didn't want praise or reward from the people. He only wanted the reward that God would give for his sacrificial service. Now, some people may not have appreciated their leaders as they should, but that didn't upset Nehemiah. He knew that the final assessment would come from God, and he was willing to wait. For you and for me, I think as believers in Jesus Christ, there are five takeaways from Nehemiah chapter 5. The first is Christians who care about the needs of others, see the needs, listen to the concerns, and do not ignore them. You and I need to have true concern for others, and it begins with an emotion, but always is accompanied by an action. Too many times as Christian leaders were involved so much in the administration side, we failed to communicate our sincere concern for the people whom God has called us to minister to. We're so busy doing the Lord's work, we don't have time to see, see the people's needs or listen to concerns. Busyness is often an enemy of godliness. But the second takeaway I think we see in Nehemiah 5 is that the Spirit of Christ, in the Spirit of Christ, rather, believers should actively oppose the exploitation of others, especially the exploitation of fellow believers by other believers. Listen, there should be a desire for reconciliation and restoration for the glory of Christ. And it has to be done amongst believers. The third thing I think we take away from Nehemiah 5 is to be an effective in serving others. We must be people of integrity. We must practice what we preach. If you and I are going to have an impact on the kingdom of God and an impact for the kingdom of Jesus, we must not only hear our message, and people may not, not only hear it, rather, but they also have to see it genuinely lived out in our daily lives. Listen, in our world, there is really no place for a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do mentality among the people of God. People must see us love and see genuine love and concern in our lives. The last thing I think we take away from this chapter is that when believers serve others, they can rest assured God will not forget what they have done. 
Jesus taught us that when we serve others, we serve him. And there's no way he will be indebted to us or owe us nothing. He will be married for our compassion of others. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 is the passage where Jesus talks about the separating of the sheep and the goat. And now the sheep saw Jesus in these conditions and they helped and they served him. Even though they didn't see Jesus, they saw his children and did these things. But then there are those who saw the need and chose not to meet it. Those meet it. Those are the goats. This morning, as we think about this chapter, the question we must really ask ourselves is this. Am I a sheep or am I a goat? Am I serving Jesus to be seen or am I serving Jesus because of the love he has in giving his son to die for my sins and it's the love I have for him and wanting to see others come to know him? My prayer and my hope is that you read through Nehemiah chapter 5 and you see a compassion for the people that Nehemiah had. He sees the concern and he meets the needs. And may that be a reminder for us as children of God to meet the needs of others when we're able to do so. And not do it to get praise, not do it to get a pat on the back, but we do it because he first loved us.